1: financially blessed so how do you use your wealth it really does matter in the grand scheme of things especially if you are a believer in christ as we'll see today on abounding grace with pastor gary wagner From Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose, greetings in Christ, and welcome to the program. This is Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner, who returns us to the book of Luke today. We find ourselves in chapter 16, looking at verses 1 through 13, a message simply called, How You Use Your Wealth Matters. Now, if you're not a Christian, it doesn't matter all that much. Go, do, and be. But if you are a Christian... Well, that changes things altogether, as we'll see today. Join us again here in Luke 16 with today's broadcast of Abounding Grace. Here's Pastor Gary Wagner.
2: This is one of the most difficult passages I think I have ever tried to interpret. So hopefully I did it justice this week. I want to begin by reading a quote from Matthew Henry. And he said this approximately 350 years ago about the text... That we will examine today. He said, We are mistaken if we imagine that the design of Christ's doctrine and holy religion was either to amuse us with divine mysteries or to entertain notions of divine mercies. No, the divine revelation of both of them in the gospel is intended to engage and quicken us to the practice of Christian duties. And as much as any one thing to the duty of beneficence and doing good to those who stand in need of anything that either we have or that we can do for them. And I think Matthew Henry here points out clearly the practical nature of this parable that we're going to talk about today. This is one of the most difficult of all Jesus' parables to interpret. In fact, reading the various interpretations of this parable makes it quite difficult intimidating. For instance, the unrighteous steward in this parable has been identified in different commentaries as a Pharisee, a tax collector, as Pilate, Judas, Satan, Paul, and even Jesus. And the owner, or the master, has been identified as God, the Romans, Mammon, and Satan. So you see, it is intimidating right from the get-go. The most frequently given interpretation of this parable, which I'm sure if you have a commentary on Luke or a book on Jesus' parables, it will probably say that Christians are to be as shrewd as the steward was shrewd in his underhanded and dishonest actions, but we are not to intimidate or condone those sinful actions. Now, do you see a problem with that most popular interpretation? You see, the problem I have with that interpretation is that the supposed dishonest actions are the ones the steward is being congratulated on for being shrewd. So I definitely don't believe that interpretation will fly. In fact, I have found people have difficulty interpreting the parable for several reasons. One of the reasons is because people think that all the parables are allegories. And they believe that every little detail of the parable has some special underlying meaning, such as, who does the owner here represent? Who does the steward represent? And I think those are the wrong questions. They don't represent anyone in particular. People, though, want the details. They want the specifics to have some kind of story for them. But when we read parables we are to look for one main point that the parable is making. For you see, most of the details are not meant to convey some lesson to us. They are necessary to complete the picture that's being drawn and to impress the picture into our memory. But it is only when some special feature of the parable stands out that we should ask what it represents, like the older son in the parable of the prodigal son. But other than that, parables have one point, and that is what we are to look for. Another problem in interpreting Jesus' parables is that we look for moralisms or political and economic and social applications of the parables in general before we look for the parables' one main point. Bear in mind that every parable Jesus told had as its theme The kingdom of God, every single one. And you can put all of his parables into four categories, each with its own particular emphasis. And if you have pen and paper, I'd like you to write down these principles because I think they will help you better understand what Christ is trying to convey to us in all of his parables. Number one, there are those parables that deal with the coming of the kingdom. And those, those parables emphasize the coming of God's kingdom into history with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the growth and the triumphant advance of the kingdom through the ages and the perfection of that kingdom at the coming of Christ. And we see this in such parables as the parable of the sower and the parable of the mustard seed and the wheat and the tares, the coming of the kingdom. Then secondly, there are parables that talk about the grace of the kingdom. And these parables emphasize that salvation and entrance into God's kingdom are based on free, unmerited, almighty, sovereign grace, and not any on anything that we deserve or that we may earn. In fact, one has said the parables describe the extravagant goodness of God like, again, the parable of the prodigal son. Then there's a third category of parables that deal with the crisis of the kingdom. And the purpose of these parables is to put the hearers in a crisis situation where they are literally forced to decide for or against Christ, like Jesus' parable about being ready for His coming so you won't get caught off guard. And then... There is a fourth category of parables where today's parable fits in on the unrighteous steward. And these are parables that deal with the life of the kingdom. They describe the quality of life and the nature of behavior of those who are literal citizens of the kingdom of God. Both of the parables here in chapter 16 of Luke deal with this category. And they are the parable of the shrewd manager, and later, probably next week, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. I think the main reason for the misinterpreting of this parable that we're looking at today is because of the failure of most interpreters to see it in its Jewish setting, in to understand something of the Jewish practices of the first century Palestine. I'm going to take... Just a little bit of time to explain some of those practices, and hopefully it won't be too boring for you. But if you don't understand these practices, you are not going to understand the point of this parable. Now, the first thing to bear in mind is that the Old Testament forbade the Jews of that day, as well as for us today, to charge our fellow Israelites' interest on charitable loans, or our brothers and sisters'. You can charge interest on business loans, but not on charitable loans. You are not to benefit off someone else's disadvantaged situation. In Exodus 22:25, 25, it says, If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not be like a moneylender. Charge him no interest. Now, even though that is as clear as a bell, In the first century, rabbinical tradition and teachings enabled a person to circumvent obedience to the laws of God. Many of the rabbinical teachings could get you out of the strict observances of God's law. Remember I told you several weeks ago that there was a rabbinical teaching that said on the Sabbath, you could walk a certain distance. But if you took a bag and you filled it with dirt from your own property, you could walk that distance, then take the dirt out of the bag, stand on it, and then walk that distance again, and then continue to do that until you reached your destination. You could walk as far as you wanted without breaking the Sabbath. There were all kinds of rabbinical traditions like that. And one of those traditions enabled a person to circumvent not charging interest on charitable loan laws. For instance, wealthy people could appoint a manager or a steward of his business and his money and give that manager the full authority to act in his name. The manager was accountable to his employer. But if the manager decided he wanted to charge a little interest on the loan of his employer's money, the employer would not be punished for that. Even if the employer himself was benefiting from that interest, it was considered the full responsibility of that manager. And there were also rabbinical teachings that provided ways for the manager to keep from going to court and protect himself in such situations, even though he was illegally charging interest. And here here is how he was able to do it. These rabbinical teachings say that if a contract that was given to a borrower said such things as, I do hereby lend to such and such $100 plus $20 interest, it would be an illegal contract. But according to the rabbis, if you hid the interest in the amount borrowed, you could get away with it. So, if the contract read, I do hereby lend so-and-so $120, knowing full well $20 of that was interest, that was okay. It was perfectly legal according to the rabbis, and the interest in those days was really high. For instance, if you borrowed wheat, there could be as high as 20% interest on that loan. And if you borrowed olive oil, which is easily perishable, you could be charged as much as 100% interest. Now remember those two figures. The manager was trusted by his employer, He controlled his employer's assets. He had full authority to deal with the debtors however he saw fit. And the debtors were responsible to the manager alone. And if that manager proved incompetent or was dishonest, his employer could require an accounting of him. And if found a failure, he could dismiss him. The manager could not take his employer to court. He couldn't appeal the master's decision because of the nature of the illegal borrowing. He would simply have to leave his job. And none of his clients or colleagues would have anything to do with him because of his dishonesty. Of course, they couldn't trust him. Now, Jesus tells the story of such a manager here. And this, in many ways, is the most unusual parable Jesus ever told. When the employer learned that the manager had squandered his money, he required an accounting, and then he fired him. And since the employer didn't have the manager arrested and punished for fraud or embezzlement or theft because of the illegal action, he fired him because he had been irresponsible, extravagant, and ineffective in the management of his employer's wealth. The manager, in Jesus' parable, having abused his employer's trust, could not appeal his decision and plead for mercy. He knew someone else would soon be given his job. So what future did he have now? He most likely lost his friends. No one trusted him. Being a beggar was out of the question. The Greek implies that he thought and he thought and he thought until suddenly it came to him. I know what I'll do. I'll make my employer's debtors indebted to me so that eventually they would welcome him into their homes, thus giving him a secure future. So then, before his dismissal took effect, he negotiated with those debtors, one by one. The first debtor came and the manager asked, how much do you owe my employer? I owe 100 measures of oil. Now, that amounts to 868 gallons of olive oil, which would require an olive orchard of at least 150 trees to produce that amount. This is not just a trifling amount of money here. The manager then told the debtor, take the bill and reduce it by half. Now, remember, what was the interest on oil? 100%. So he was saying, forget the interest and just pay what you borrowed. The second debtor told the manager he owed 100 measures of wheat, and that is 1,000 bushels of wheat, which would take 100 acres to produce. The manager told the second debtor to reduce the amount he owed by 20%, the exact amount of the interest that he owed. Again, forget the interest, just pay what you borrowed. Of course, the debtors agreed to these new contracts. Because they knew really how ridiculous the interest was on those loans to begin with. So they had gladly agreed to the reduction, making the amounts exactly what they owed minus the interest. Now, this manager did nothing dishonest here. There is no theft, there is no fraud, there is no embezzlement, there is no falsification of figures going on here. In fact, he repents. He says, I'm guilty of charging you interest, but now I just want you to pay the amount back that you originally borrowed. I wasn't supposed to charge you interest in the first place, so just pay the borrowed amount. So honesty prevailed in this shrewd manager. Now, what happened when the employer found out what the manager had done? Look at verse 8. His master praised the unrighteous steward because he had acted shrewdly or wisely. Now, why did he praise him? Well, I believe he praised him for several reasons. Number one, this manager had secured wisely his own future. He assured himself of the generosity and hospitality of the debtors who were happy now that they no longer had to pay the interest And he paved the way for his successor by removing any ill will on the part of those clients, and he gave his master the opportunity to praise him by removing the interest and proving himself and the master to be law-abiding citizens who took seriously the law of God. Well, then why is that manager called in this parable an unrighteous steward? Well, the word unrighteous or dishonest can't apply to the manager's negotiation with the debtors, because in the next clause, which says, because he acted shrewdly or wisely would be contradictory. The word unrighteous or dishonesty more than likely describes the manager's early actions when he squandered his employer's money. So he developed a reputation now for being responsible. Now, what is this parable all about? What is the application? Jesus actually applies it in verses 8 through 13. In fact, in the last part of verse 8 and verse 9, you have the application of the parable, and then in verses 10 through 13, you have the expansion of that application. So let's read those verses. Let's begin with the last part of chapter 8. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is best is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another's, another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Notice now in verses 8 and 9 the point of the parable. The manager who developed a reputation for irresponsibility and greed realized that with his dismissal his future would be at stake. So he sought approval from his clients and his employer by repenting and being honest and was then charitable to his employer's debtors and made preparations to secure his own future. He didn't cling to his worldly wealth. He generously gave it to those who were indebted to his master, even though the money wasn't his to give. But it wasn't the employer's to give either because of the underhanded law-breaking that had taken place. Therefore, the people of light, brothers and sisters, should not set their hearts on material possessions, Because all we have, we have received from the living God as a stewardship to use for his honor. As David said in the presence of Israel in 1 Chronicles 29, 14, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, Lord, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. Or as Jesus put it, Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So in this parable, Jesus is teaching his disciples to be generous (coughs) in the giving away of our money, in the investing of our money, so that God will be pleased with us and we will be welcomed into his house to live with him forevermore. The gifts, the talents, the abilities, the strengths, the promises, the properties, the investments. All that we have are His. Remember, Jesus said, give it all up for me. Turn it all over to me to be used at my disposal. And one of the things I want you to do with your money is to help those who are in need. So the manager, by reducing the amount his employer's debtors owed, was preparing for his future. He was doing actually what an honest man should do, preparing himself for a secure future for himself and his family on this earth. And how much more should the disciples share their possessions with those in need and those who are oppressed and those who have been stolen from, from perhaps our beloved government, And look forward to their future and prepare themselves for their eternal destiny. Now, there are some interesting phrases here that I want us to look at. Look at verse 8 again. And his master praised the unrighteous steward because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And how true that is. The phrase sons of is a Hebrew idiom meaning those who share the characteristics of. So those who share the characteristics of and behavior and goals and motives of this present evil age and culture outside of Christ, those are the sons of this age. And the sons of light are those disciples of Christ who share the characteristics, share the life, have the motives and goals and kingdom of light which they have been translated to by God's grace. So the point is, the unregenerate in this evil world often show more intelligence than the regenerate disciples of Christ in their dealings with people and with money.
1: Eight six You're also welcome to visit our website. Drop us an email when you do, reformedheritage.org. Real simple, reformedheritage.org. A lot of information there about who we are. We would invite you again to stop by, reformedheritage.org. Or if you're writing to us, the address is PMB, Post Mailbox, 402, and the address is 1484 Pollard Road,